Well, good evening everyone. We've got the faithful few tonight. <laughs> it's lovely to see you all. And um, the passage of scripture that I've been given tonight is from the end of the first chapter of Romans and Andy has called it one messed up creation and I haven't messed up your title this time I've kept with it. I think that's a terrific title to talk about us as one messed up creation. You'll notice that I haven't included every one of those verses. It's a long passage and what I've left out in the middle is the bit about idolatry and homosexuality. Not that I don't think they're important, they are, but the trouble is people get as far as reading about homosexuality and then they lose the track of everything else because they get so caught up with that. So we're not going to do that tonight because I want us to keep the thread of what this is about. And we're having a bit of a preamble before we actually look at the scripture. If you read straight through this passage, you'll end up feeling very depressed. It sounds like God is very condemning and there's no hope for mankind. And it's really, really important that we understand the point of this passage, what Paul is really trying to say in this passage. Now, the way I see it, is it's a diagnosis. It's not a condemnation of mankind. It's like getting a diagnosis. Imagine that one day you're having a shower and you discover a lump in a place where you shouldn't have a lump. And so, like all the rest of us, you hope it's going to go away. But a week later, it's still there and within another week, it's grown some. So, you take yourself off to the doctor now, it would be no use if the doctor just said to you, oh, that looks like a bit of a lump, don't worry about it, take a couple of Panadol if it's painful and don't worry, it'll, I'm sure it'll be all right. You'd be rushing off to another doctor, wouldn't you? Because we want an accurate diagnosis. Even if that diagnosis tells us that what we've got is life-threatening, we need to know. And then the doctor will say, it's life-threatening, but this is how we are going to attack the problem. And you need to know so that you can cooperate with everything that the doctor wants to do. Now, that's exactly what this passage is like. It is diagnosing what is wrong with mankind and it's not a pretty picture. It's like going to the doctor with a lump and finding out that that is a terrible form of cancer. But the doctor is going to treat it and fix it for you. And so it's the same here. While Paul tells us that mankind is in a terrible state, we have all messed up big time. That's not the end of the story. It's only the first chapter of Romans. It's only the diagnosis. Just hang on and get through the rest of Romans and you'll see the solution that God has put together. So having said all that, let's read it. That was a funny reaction. I'm going the wrong way. For the anger of God is unveiled from heaven against all the ungodliness and injustice performed by people who use injustice to suppress the truth. What can be known of God, you see, is plain to them since God has revealed it to them. There are, of course, things about God which you can't see, namely his earthly power and deity. But ever since the world was created, they have been known and seen in the things he has made. As a result, they have no excuse. They knew God 
but didn't honour him as God or thank him. Instead, they learned to think in useless ways and their unwise heart grew dark. They declared themselves to be wise, but in fact they became foolish. Moreover, just as they did not see fit to hold on to the knowledge of God, God gave them up to an unfit mind so that they would behave inappropriately. They were filled with all kinds of injustice, wickedness, greed and evil. They were full of envy, murder, enmity, deceit and cunning. They became gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, self-important, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, unwise, unfaithful, unfeeling, uncaring. They know that God has rightly decreed that people who do things like that deserve death. But not only do they do them, they give their approval to people who practice them. What a depressing list. And you know, you might tick yourself off and think, well, idolatry, oh no, that's not it, or homosexuality or even any other particular form of sexual sin, but I'll bet nobody comes squeaky clean out of that list. I'm sure that there's something in there that you'll identify that you have come short of the glory of God. Absolutely every one of us comes under condemnation because every one of us cannot do the things that God wants us to do. But there are some problems. There are two things I'm going to highlight in this passage where people really have a problem. And the first one is in the first verse up on the screen. For the anger of God is unveiled from heaven. Now we read about anger, God's anger. And sometimes that does not sit well with our idea that God is a loving God, God is kind, God is merciful, God is full of grace, God is full of compassion. So why is he angry? Where does this anger come from? And furthermore, I've used um, Tom Wright's translation of this passage because he uses the word anger. A lot of translations, including the NIV, use the old-fashioned English word wrath. If you want to be American, it's wrath, but I'm I'm Australian, so it's wrath. Um, So they use that word wrath, which doesn't sort of sound quite as in your face as the normal word anger, but actually Paul uses the Greek word for straightforward anger. So we don't want to shy away from this. We need to face it head on. Why is God angry? Now the first thing to notice is God isn't cranky because he got out of bed on the right side this morning. He's not having a hissy fit over there in the corner because he wants something and he can't get it. He's not throwing a tantrum. God is not just being mean and nasty and spiteful and horrible and all those reasons why we often get angry, particularly with people in our family. No. That anger is actually related to his love. Now that mightn't sound right on the face of it, but if you think for a moment, we, all of us, if we truly have love, 
we will feel anger at times. For example, imagine that somebody goes to court and they've committed some minor crime. They've parked in the wrong place or they've parked for too long or they went five kilometres over the speed limit or something. And so the magistrate or the judge says, all right, um, there's no prison sentence or anything with that. There's not even a criminal record, just a couple of hundred dollars fine and that's, that's it. But imagine if somebody was brought up to that same court who had committed rape and murder and all sorts of horrible crimes and the judge said to them, oh, well, just pay a couple of hundred dollars, it'll be fine, off you go. How would we feel? We've had a couple of cases, very sadly, in the news in the last couple of years, or, and I think it's more than a couple, where babies and little children have been killed by members of the family or people minding them. They've been so abused that they've died. And in more than one case, hundreds of neighbours had reported to docs what had been going on and no action had been taken to remove those children to safety. How do you think those people felt when what they said was totally ignored? There's a place for righteous anger. We should be angry about the children who are in slavery. As we've been talking about the, the children caught up in prostitution in Spain, we should be angry about those things. Not angry because we don't get our way, but angry when we see vulnerable people being abused. I can remember once when my parents were in their early 90s and they were quite frail. They were the gentlest, loveliest, kindest people. And there was a news item that came up about how some elderly per person had been beaten to a pulp and robbed and you know all those horrible things we, we see. And I had this sudden horrible feeling, this just moment what would I do if that were my parents? How could some terrible person do that to my vulnerable, beautiful people, my, my parents? And I said to Eric, I think if that happened to my parents, I would attack that person with my bare hands. Now that's me, but you know if you knew Eric, you would know how, what a gentle soul he was and he smiled wryly at me and he said, you'd have to get in the queue behind me. <laughs> yeah, there is a place for righteous anger. So that's part of what God's anger is about. But it goes further than that. God's anger is a kind of automatic reaction to anything that is less than perfect and right and just and good because God is all of those things. In his righteousness and holiness, he is perfect and he just cannot have anything less than that in his presence. So it's a kind of automatic reaction of God to the way that people behave. And I'm not going to use the word sin. I, we, we get turned off when we hear the word sin or else we think back to when we were taught at Sunday school or kids' church about the naughty things that children do and that's how we see sin. But sin is rebellion against God and that's the basic cause of his anger. Now, I nearly didn't get beyond verse, the first verse here because there's so much contained in this first verse. There are three reasons given 
why God is angry. There are three particular categories of things that we do. The first one says, get the right piece of paper, the anger of God is unveiled from heaven against the ungodliness. Now nobody in the world can say that they didn't know about God because Paul goes on to say people are naturally drawn to God when they look at his creation. We see the wonder, the, the beauty of creation, the majesty, the awe, but also all the bountiful things that God has blessed us with on this earth. It's not just the beauty that we see around us, but all the food that we grow, our housing, everything that God has provided for us. That hasn't come by accident. It's not hard for anybody in this world to work out that there is a God. But how many people have turned their backs on him and the worst part is not denying his reality. The worst part is imagining some other God of our own making. And as many people as there are atheists, there are still a lot of them in our culture who have still some understanding of God, but he's what they imagine him to be. And instead of the reality of God that we can see, and particularly for us here, there is absolutely no excuse. There are more Bibles in Australia than you could shake a stick at. There are more things on television than the internet, uh, apart from the churches that we have. Anybody can find out about God. So there's no excuse for us in particular here to be godless, to, to be rebelling against God. And then secondly... God is angry about the injustice and we've talked about that. God is angry about vulnerable people being abused just as we are. So that's the second cause. But then there's another one. People who use injustice to suppress the truth. People who have turned God's lies into truth. And I want to say two, give you two examples here. In my adult lifetime, not my childhood, just my childhood, but in my adult lifetime, the law in Australia has told me the following things. Number one, homosexuality is a crime, punishable, pun, male homosexuality is a crime, punishable by a jail sentence. And that was in vogue in my adult years. Then the law told me that it's no longer a crime, it's removed from the, the statute books as a crime. Then the law said that adults could live however they wanted to and whatever, but they didn't have any rights. There, there were no rights the same way as there are in a marriage. Then they decided and changed that and that there are, and now what are we heading for, gay marriage? Now I have the greatest difficulty coping with all those changes, and being told by the law that this is right, no, that's wrong, this is right, no, that's wrong, this is right, no, that's wrong. I can't keep up with it. It's, it's crazy because we are, we are suppressing the truth and believing a lie. We're just turning it into a lie. Um, the other thing, not on the theme of, of homosexuality, but I watched a program on television a couple of years ago about a group of Christian families in America where their children are really dedicating themselves to be chaste until they are married. And the thing that struck me, some of, I thought some of the things that they were teaching and doing were a bit over the top, but the thing that caught, really, really grabbed me 
the interviewer was talking to a girl who was engaged and she could not cope with the fact that these, this young couple were saving themselves for marriage. It was beyond her understanding that anybody could do that. Even if they didn't enter, even if the girl wasn't off with every bloke that she'd, she'd ever seen, these were engaged. They were going to be married. Why was she still a virgin? And it's, the, it's that attitude of our culture. We have turned the truth into a lie. It's no wonder that God is angry with people. It's, it's, it's his attitude towards us rebelling and going our own way. Now the other problem oh, the moreover. There's another problem in the first verse in this section, in verse 28. Moreover, just as they did not see fit to hold on to the knowledge of God, God gave them up to an unfit mind. God gave, it's translated, God gave them up or God gave them over or in some translations it's God abandoned them. Now it actually means to hand over. It means God, the, the literal idea is God handed them over. God gave them over. What does that mean? Why did God take his hands off and let people get into a worse mess than they were in at the start? Why does he step back and allow people to go down some path when he could intervene and stop it? I've been thinking all week about that song, I Offer Devotion. Now, I had no contact with Amanda through the week about this message, but that song's been on my mind the whole week. God created us to do things willingly for him. We can either go our own way and rebel against him, do it my way, but he doesn't make us do anything. He's not made us robots He's not made us so that we start down some track and then suddenly God intervenes and turns us into robots who are going to turn away from the wrong things we're doing and start worshipping him. No, he gives us free will to keep on going down that track. But if like Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, if that is our desire to do it my way, then God will allow us to do it our way and we will bear the consequences. And it is absolutely no use complaining. Why blame God? He didn't give us the idea. It's our idea to do it my way. Just realised I should be on the next slide, but never mind, that's beside the point. I knew a young man once who fell in love with a girl um, and he was absolutely besotted with her and they got engaged. Now, they were engaged, unengaged, re-engaged, unengaged, re-engaged. What chance would you give for the marriage? Okay, well you're right. The marriage lasted about five or six years and it fell apart very acrimoniously and the young man lost a lot of money. 
Some years later, he said to his father, why did you not stop me from marrying that woman? Why did you let me go ahead and make a mess of my life? And the father gently reminded the young man that the young man's best friend, who was his best man at the wedding, had tried to tell him that he didn't think that this would be a very good marriage. And what did he get for his pains? The young man very nearly decked him. (laughs) Don't complain if things get worse when you've made up your mind to go in this particular way. God will take his hands off and allow you to do it. So while it's a problem for many people, there's a very simple explanation as to why this happens. So we finish this awful list of things that people do wrong. We finish the diagnosis of the messed up world, the messed up mankind that we have become. There's a word that theologians use that's called total depravity. It doesn't mean that absolutely everything that people do if they're not Christians is bad. What it means is we are totally unable to rescue ourselves. There is absolutely nothing we can do to get ourselves out of this situation. And the other song that Amanda had, and again it's so interesting because we had no, no contact, this is just the Holy Spirit, that song that we sang earlier about um, Jesus didn't want heaven without us so he brought heaven down and that's exactly it. No matter the fact that, that we are so messed up and we insist on rebelling against God and going our own way, what an amazing God we serve. One who is the solution, not just provides us with a solution but is himself the solution to our problems. And while we have talked about God's anger and God giving people over, once you get past this diagnosis at the beginning of Romans and you keep on reading, you come across these two beautiful, uh, beautiful verses that speak about the love of God. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were helpless, nothing we could do. God doesn't say, pull your socks up, get a bit better, improve, stop doing these things, start doing these things, then I'll do something for you. He comes to us at the bottom of the pit when our life couldn't be any worse, when we have messed it up totally and that's when he shows his love to us. And the other one in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, some translations have it, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. What more could we want? Why would you want some other definition of who God is or why would you want to deny God when we have such an awesome God to serve? The cross is the solution for the problems of mankind. And it's God himself in the person of his second son who bears the consequences, takes on himself the consequences that we have brought on ourselves. He takes those so that we can go totally free. We can have his free gift of forgiveness 
an eternal life which begins now, not after death, but right now we can have a transformed life and know the blessing of living for him. Now we're going to move straight into communion. And I'm so pleased that we have communion tonight because this is the closest that we get to the cross. This physically brings us to the cross. As we take the bread, so we remember Jesus' body broken for us. As we drink the cup, we remember Jesus' blood shed for us. His body broken for us that we might be made whole. His blood shed that we might be forgiven. It's a perfect combination. This is Jesus bringing heaven down. He so much wanted our love and fellowship and companionship to be offered freely to him that he brought heaven down. He, he, he did this for us that we might know him. Now, I don't know where you are at in your Christian life. Maybe tonight it's just a matter of thank you, Jesus, for what you did I don't deserve it, but once again my eyes are opened again to see the amazing love that you had for me. Or maybe there's something deeper. Maybe it is that you've not seen this before or maybe you put it to the back of your mind and now you're thinking, I really want to offer my devotion. I want to offer my devotion back to God for the gift of his son that he has given me. In a moment we will take the bread and the wine. Um, I'll get you to take them back, to come out in a, in a moment, just wait for a moment. I'll get you to come out and take them back, eat the bread at your own time and we'll drink the cup together when I say. Um, but as you do and you're sitting in your seat, just offer your heart to the Holy Spirit. What does he want to say to you about the cross? What does he want to say to you about your life? Just listen for what he wants to say and then answer him. Respond to him in whatever way is most appropriate. When we do come out, it's not the table of our church or the Baptist denomination. This is the Lord's table. 